0: It is no secret that there are huge cultural and structural barriers which prevent many people in the United States from accessing education. These barriers are even higher when it comes to those who are incarcerated. And yet there is good evidence that shows that obtaining an education makes a huge difference in the lives of the incarcerated. To discuss, we've invited Manisha Gelman onto the show. Manisha is the founder and director of the Emerson Prison Initiative, which makes college available to incarcerated students in Massachusetts. She's the editor of Education Behind the Wall Why and How We Teach in Prison, and co editor of the forthcoming book, Unlocking Potential Education in Prison Around the World.
1: It's a daring task. Help those behind the wall get degrees so when they are released, they have a positive future. College-level programs were once common in prisons. That changed in the
0: 1990s when felons became ineligible for financial aid known as Pell Grants. We don't use the word criminal to talk about ourselves when we've done something wrong. We reserve that word for people who've been caught.
2: EPI believes that access to a high-quality education that recognizes the potential of and nurtures each human being is a fundamental right. I'm Manisha Gelman, and I'm working to
0: expand access to college for people in prison. Sorry, not sorry. Manisha, welcome to Sorry, Not Sorry. So happy to have you. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
2: Sure. Well, thanks so much for the invitation to be here and talk with you. I'm an associate professor of political science at Emerson College in the Marlborough Institute for Liberal Arts and Interdisciplinary Studies. I teach a range of classes on human rights and democratization and U.S.-Latin American relations, and I'm also the founder and director of the Emerson Prison Initiative, which brings a bachelor's degree pathway to people who are incarcerated in the Massachusetts state prison system.
0: It's so cool. When you approached Emerson with this idea... It must have been very outside of the box, right? You go to them, you're saying, "I have this idea of founding a prison initiative." What was the reaction like? It
2: is both out of the box and inside the box, literally and figuratively. The idea for college in prison is something that's actually been happening for decades in the United States, but because in 1994, under President Clinton, with the one of the tough on crime laws that was put into place took away the funding of Pell Grants, federal financial aid for incarcerated students. And basically what we saw in the late 90s and through the 2000s, up until a couple of years ago, was a shrinking of the college and prison community, like very few programs operating in that space. In the last several years, there's actually been a reinstatement of what's called second chance Pell or Pell Grants for people who are incarcerated. And so right now there's actually a boom in more and more programs being created. But at the time in 2016, when I first approached the administration at Emerson College about this idea, the college was really at a moment of looking deeply at what it means to do equity and justice-based work, what it means to address diversity as a predominantly white institution and a very privileged institution. And I think that the idea for expanding access to historically and contemporarily marginalized people, to expand access to college for that group, just hit at a moment in which the president, the then president of the college, Lee Pelton, was really open and interested in furthering the college's mission to do that. And so, of course, there's skepticism and concern about the logistics and what it actually means, lots and lots of questions and hoops to jump through. But I think initially there was philosophical buy-in that allowed the program to go from not existing to existing as a full-grown bachelor's
0: degree program very quickly. Tell us a little bit about the students who enroll while incarcerated. Yeah, so the
2: students are the basis for the entire program and they come to us from all walks of life. So some folks have graduated high school in a traditional sense of doing a K through 12 education outside before becoming incarcerated, but the majority of folks in the program became system involved as young people, many in their early teens. Before they were actually of adult age. And that was interruptive to their education. And so many of them did a high set or a GED, like a high school equivalency, once they were incarcerated. And we work with students ranging from their 20s to their 60s, right? We have people from all walks of life who become students for us. The thing that unites them is really a deep hunger to learn, to set a new course for their lives, and to find a place of feeling proud of themselves and the work that they do within their own minds and also to provide a sense of pride for their families. Many folks have fraught relationships, as you can imagine, after receiving their sentences and serving many years inside. And so college access, the process of that credentialization is really a means to build a new identity that both students and their larger communities can feel proud of.
0: Is everyone that enrolls selected or how does that work? How does the selection process work? Yeah, so it's
2: a competitive and rigorous admissions program. We're actually running admissions for a third cohort of students right now. I'm in the midst of reviewing applications again, but for the very first cohort, as well as our subsequent cohorts, we ask students to fill out an application form and then to respond in an essay format to a liberal arts prompt. We usually offer three different options. So one will be a poem. One might be a James Baldwin excerpt. One might be an excerpt from a work of fiction. And we say, choose a prompt, respond to it, And we collect those essays. We have a panel of faculty at Emerson College that read the essays and score them. And then we invite a number of students for in-person interviews. We go to the prison to interview them there. And then based on those essay scores and the interviews, we offer admission to about 20 people per cohort. And so it's a highly selective process. And we know that we disappoint people every time we run admissions because we turn some folks down, but we always encourage them to keep learning and growing and to apply again when it might be a more opportune time for them.
3: There's a lot of hopelessness in here. With, with some education, it gives you a little hope as to a future.
0: The U.S. has a lot of people in prison, and one solution to keep prisoners from returning to a life behind bars could be an education. One study showed former inmates were 43% less likely to return to prison within three years if they got an education there, but a lot of prisoners can't afford to take classes. That's why there's a push to get inmates pilgrims. You mentioned the Pell Grants before. I'm wondering what the other obstacles, the other barriers incarcerated students face when pursuing education.
2: They face so many barriers. Imagine if you were locked in your bathroom without a telephone or computer and then told to go to college, right? So what does it mean to do college without the internet? Because folks in the Massachusetts system have very minimal to no access to the internet. We've done a lot of things as a program to try to address research access, for example. We've worked to get an abstract database of peer-reviewed academic articles available in the computer labs that are offline. That students do have access to. That's been laborious, but really successful in being able to have students go in and search those abstracts. And then we have a form where they can request the full-length article. So we take those research request forms out. We bring back in the articles. We've developed a lot of protocols to be able to work around some of the limitations.
0: I think education right now is so in flux. We're seeing a number of books being banned, book bans being enacted outside of prisons. So what happens in those states inside prisons? Are students able to access the same materials? You answered that a little bit, but what happens with the book bans?
2: Yeah, so every state has different policies for censorship in their own Department of Corrections. So we're really lucky in Massachusetts that we're not subject to some of the more intense censorship policies that are happening in other states across the United States right now. We do have to submit all of the books and DVDs that we would like to screen to the Department of Correction. And occasionally there are things that raise concerns and we address them together. So every now and then we have a book or article or a film that we're asked to not screen. We can't screen R-rated movies, for example, per the DOC media policy. And Emerson has a very large film department. A lot of people come to the school for filmmaking. And so there's some film professors that are like, how can I not show this film? That's really the cornerstone of my course. But that said, compared to many other states that are in the headlines right now, there is a larger respect for the kind of academic freedom that we need to make college run. And I will say that a core value of the Emerson Prison Initiative is being able to offer the same quality and content for the most part for our courses inside the prison that we offer on the traditional Boston campus. And so we really work with faculty to make sure that the courses are as parallel as possible to what they would offer in their standard curriculum outside and figure out how to translate that inside, working around some of those barriers like technology and research access.
0: Why do initiatives like this matter?
2: I think about this work as an intervention in the social hierarchy that exists. The social hierarchy in the United States that is race and class based and very intersectional in how some people continue to be marginalized generation after generation has a lot to do with who has access to quality education. Emerson, like other colleges throughout the U.S. that offer college and prison programs, are making an intervention in that social hierarchy by extending prestigious, high-quality college access to people who have been most left out of those opportunities. And so what we hear from students is not only is it making a direct intervention in their own lives, because we have folks who have come out of prison with their degrees in hand who are now working in fabulous jobs and very, you know, upward social mobility kinds of ways, but they're also inspiring their children, their nieces, their parents sometimes to go back to college and to further their own education. So it's really, we see it as an intergenerational intervention in shifting the social hierarchy.
0: I just thought of, you know, in my family, I didn't graduate high school. I got my GED when I was 16. I went to a high school my senior year because I was a child actor and felt like I was missing out on so much. But I've always tried to continue to learn. But I do know that there is just a stigma surrounding having your GED and not an actual diploma, regardless of what the quality of education was or what I felt. We expect education to be just one thing and you get it this way, right? And I fall into it with my kids all the time. Like I look at them and I'm like, this could actually be the generation that goes to college in my family because we never, nobody in my family has ever gone to college. I think it's just so interesting how, like, what we think preparation for success looks like. And that social construct is really important still. So to give people an opportunity to meet expectations where they live is so vital. I could imagine you've seen resistance from the program. I mean, even just within the community or in the prisons. Can you talk a little bit about that, the resistance that you've faced?
2: Yeah, I mean, first, I'll just acknowledge my bias as a college professor, that I think college is a wonderful opportunity for people from many backgrounds to have the mental space and the time in their lives to get to deeply contemplate the life of the mind and to really deepen their own sense of who we are in relation to society and the world of ideas.
3: I'm always asked the question, why should we be investing in people who are in prison to get a college education, especially in the context of the fact that so many people want to send their children to college and they say, well, my kid can't afford to go to college. Why are you sending money to make sure that people who are incarcerated get to go to college? My response to that is we do have a choice. For example, California spends roughly $65,000 per year on average per inmate, and they spend $4,200 per year on average per college student. It costs more to put a person in prison and keep them there than it does to educate. So if you're going to spend your money, why not make an investment?
2: I don't at all think that college is the only place that happens. And so there are absolutely so many other mechanisms where that kind of personal growth can take place. What I do know is that for folks who have to check the box, have you ever been convicted of a felony, checking that box on employment applications, for example, or on housing applications, because in in the state of Massachusetts, though it is technically illegal to discriminate on the basis of criminal history for employment, it is not for housing. So for folks who have to check the box in any circumstance, being able to follow that up with but I have this credential, I have this bachelor's degree from this fancy school that makes a difference in the kinds of opportunities open to people. So I just, I wanna be clear that college is not the only solution or the only kind of intervention that we need in addressing social hierarchy intervention. The whole social safety net in the United States is open for debate when we look at that, but it is one concrete tool that existing institutions are capable of doing now. And so because of that, it's a place where I channel my energy, but it's by no means the only solution. In terms of resistance, yeah, we face resistance in a number of spaces. Massachusetts is a leader in higher education in the United States. It is not a leader in higher education in prison in the United States, even though we are saturated with colleges and universities here. And I think there's lots of reasons for that, but at the end of the day, Not everyone is open to the second chance argument, this idea that people who have been convicted of a range of crimes deserve the kind of opportunity that might be denied to someone on the outside because they don't have the money to afford college. And whether it's just citizens in the state who are resistant or people within the Department of Correction or people within Emerson, within all of the institutions that we work There are some folks that think like, why should this person who's in prison get this amazing education for free when this other person over here is working so hard and still can't afford it? And I think that taps into a larger conversation about the need to make higher education free or affordable for everyone, which I absolutely believe. But in the meantime, it's recognizing that people in prison, many people in prison, have lived through intensely traumatic things. These are by and large a population that have very high ACEs scores or adverse childhood experiences scores. And so have a number of compounding variables that make it really hard to find those open doors to a new path for upward social mobility. And college access is one thing that can directly help facilitate that process.
0: In 2022, the United States had about 25% of the world's prison population. We both incarcerated more people and a higher percentage of people than any other nation. What does that say about us? We have
2: incarcerated so many people as a method of social control. And the United States uses prison as a way to address social problems like Public health crises, you know, mental health could be addressed in many other ways, but it's addressed through incarceration in the United States. A lot of literature that I've read really draws the direct parallel from the civil rights movement in the 1950s up to the war on drugs. And so the war on drugs and the criminalization of blackness and the criminalization of black drug use, quite distinct from white drug use was a way to continue marginalization of people of color at a time post-civil rights when people of color were supposed to be able to access a larger benefits package in society. And so the war on drugs essentially focused as a way to deflect that advancement. The high number of incarceration, I think, also is rooted in a really punitive sense of, in my field, the terminology would be retributive justice, justice that is punishing where punishment is the answer to a social transgression. I advocate for restorative justice for justice as a process that allows for the rebuilding of social fabric and to provide opportunities for people who have transgressed to try to right those wrongs in some way. And I think people who have had the years to reflect through college, through the process of college and the personal growth that comes with it, are best equipped to reenter society or to be thought leaders inside prison for folks serving long-term sentences in ways that can allow some of that healing to take place. I think anything that we do to cultivate the life of the mind is so important, but as a country, this reliance on incarceration as a tool to address social problems has led to the United States being this leader, quote unquote, in incarceration. And it's ultimately not getting us to a healthier, more fulfilled society.
0: That's exactly what I was going to say, is restorative justice not only is the more humane thing to do, the more human thing to do, the more empathetic and compassionate thing to do, it works. Right. And what I'll say about
2: recidivism or the rate at which people return to prison after leaving it is the statistics are very clear that people who complete a college degree while incarcerated return to prison at dramatically lower rates than people that don't. And this is unsurprising because they're eminently employable when they leave with a college degree versus leaving with the same skill set that brought them into prison in the first place. And I wonder what it would take as a country to see public safety and access to education as something that goes hand in hand. So you shouldn't have to end up in prison to have access to quality education, right? What would it look like? How much safer could we be if we address the school-to-prison pipeline, for example? And communities are reckoning with this all across the United States as we look at the role of school resource officers, for example, the putting of police in school. There's this phrase that you
0: might hear in the news sometimes, the school-to-prison pipeline. It's shorthand for how schools are funneling students, especially black students, into the criminal justice system. It started in the 90s when schools responded to fears about crime with zero tolerance policies, which mandated suspensions and expulsions for certain violations. They also cracked down on little things like talking back or uniform violations. The hope was that it would keep bigger problems from bubbling up, but as a result, Out-of-school suspensions have doubled since the 1970s, and they keep increasing even though juvenile crime rates have now been dropping for years. Around the same time, the number of police officers stationed full-time inside schools has increased by a third between 1997 and
2: 2007. Uh, I think it connects to some much larger questions about how public safety is maintained and ultimately who is in charge of enacting it.
0: And we hear this word grooming so much about ridiculous things. But what about that child that grows up with a police officer watching their every move, not giving them space to actually, I don't know, make mistakes like young people do? And I think that is a big part of just it's just the criminalization of impoverished America and we know that people of color and rural people and poor people are both less likely to have access to a college education and more likely to be incarcerated during their lifetimes. How do prison-based degree programs undermine those injustices? It's
2: a great question. I think that what we see is when college comes to prison, It changes what people are able to spend their time doing. And I don't want to overgeneralize about people who are incarcerated in general, but what we see in the Massachusetts system and certainly what we see in our student population is that many folks apply to our program having been system involved since their early teens and really having slipped through the cracks of so many institutions. They didn't have the family support or they didn't have the community support or they didn't have adequate legal representation. It's not to excuse that many of the people in college and prison programs have inflicted harm on other people. And I want to be really clear about that. We are not saying that these are all nonviolent drug offenders, right, who never hurt anyone. Like some of the folks in these programs have hurt people. And it's important to keep the victim's rights perspective in our minds as we talk about this kind of work. But ultimately, if we want to repair harm as a society, we have to look at how that actually happens. And when we held our first graduation for the bachelor's degree program last fall, one of our students at his graduation speech said, we used to be lifting weights or walking the yard and we'd be just gossiping, just talking about whatever, the latest scandal in Hollywood, the latest like whatever, the latest dirt from our neighborhood. And once we started college, we were debating ideas about human rights. We were debating politics. We were talking about government. We were bench pressing and arguing about Foucault. And so to me, (laughs) like that's the shift that can happen in communities when people have access to education, they go from like dissing each other or dissing each other's communities because they're bored and don't have the space or intellectual tools to like take that somewhere else. So then providing those tools, we bring books in every semester. We bring in college-level books and a framework for how to engage with them. And those become the conversations on the yard. Those become the things that shape these communities. And the Emerson Prison Initiative is one of many programs where we see this kind of work happening. You know, it's happening in the Department of Youth Services facilities in Massachusetts. It's happening across many other states in a range of carceral settings where when folks have access to education, it just changes how they're doing their time and what they want for themselves at the end of that time.
0: I love it so much. And what happens to EPI students when they are released from prison?
2: So we have, we've only had a handful of people released so far, and I'll share a couple of those stories. So one of our students graduated with his degree in hand, and he has been working for the last year or so at a nonprofit in Massachusetts working with at-risk youth, working to prevent them going down a similar path to what he went down. And he's become a community organizer. He's been working on a voting rights initiative for incarcerated people in the state. He's just doing the work of democracy. Another student came out with, he had just a little bit of time left and he ended up just finishing his degree on the Boston campus. I watched him walk across the stage at graduation a couple of days ago. It was amazing. And so he came out and started working at another nonprofit that supports legal rights for people who are incarcerated. And he's also working as a community organizer addressing racial and ethnic disparity for the criminal legal system and just, again, doing this work that is so fundamental to furthering a real sense of democracy and justice in the state. We have alums like that. We have another student who came out about halfway through his degree program, and he's been working at Emerson College on an initiative called Transforming Narratives of Gun Violence. So that's been his part-time job as he's also been doing a full-time course load, and he's going to graduate with us by the end of 2023. We just see that our students are really inspired to give back to communities and to try to address some of the issues that shaped their own lives in ways that will a positive course for the people that come after them.
0: Wait, are there challenges to these students integrating back or into the campus?
1: It was through that knowledge journey and that questioning that I was ultimately able to reject criminality and move into this greater self-awareness and a greater personal self. So coming home, there there is something that education does to you. Now, we could talk about it being making you job ready. We all know that. We can get a job ready. And those are wonderful things. But when you possess a set of skills that allow you to see in ways that others don't see. See, I felt my inner sociology in BPI. I didn't realize I really loved it until I became (laughs) friends with another cohort member named And I really, he started to help me unpack and I loved the way power operates covertly through systems. And I became in love with that. So, in the work that I do in the community, my activism, my organizing, my youth work with Roca, it allows me to go into these systems and be a better version than I would be.
0: Do students who were not incarcerated have safety concerns? How does that work? How does the college manage those concerns, if there are any?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. And we've done a lot of diplomacy on exactly that issue. Every institution is going to handle that differently. I think, again, because the philosophical buy-in from Emerson was so strong in the beginning, we've been able to continue to see a lot of goodwill across the many support offices of the college. So before we had the first EPI student transition to the Boston campus, we started to build a network of support for them. So working with our Office of Student Success, working with our multicultural associations, working with the Office of Campus Life working with our counseling and support organizations and really trying to cultivate relationships with folks to help raise awareness about what it means to support non-traditional students. So we think of EPI students who transition to the Boston campus as non-traditional students. These are often folks who come to us in their 40s or 50s, you know, and they're in class with a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds. They're non-traditional. So how do we support them as learners and how do we make sure that everyone's feeling good about the process of being in class together? It's not that there aren't uncomfortable questions about safety and security, but I think it's really important to highlight that for folks who have been released, they have served their time. They were convicted of something, they served their time, and they have then already deemed worthy of release of parole in some cases, or they've overturned their cases in other situations. Once they are out of prison, I think in the United States in general, we continue to punish people for having gone to prison. So what we're trying to do at Emerson is say, okay, you've served your time, you're out how can we support you as a non-traditional student? I just finished my own teaching semester on campus and had several students in my own classes that were also in classes with some of the former EPI students. And one of them came up to me just a couple of weeks ago and said, I just wanna say, I had no framework for understanding what prison was like or was about before I started working with this student. But over the course of the semester, I was in his group for some small group projects and I spent a lot of time talking to him. And I learned so much about his experience. And I feel so motivated to be involved in issues around incarceration and to really help my family rethink what prison means. Like this student was on fire. She just was totally motivated to engage with issues around prison differently because she had met someone who had lived through it and saw he wanted to work really hard on his group project. He wanted to, like, get a good grade and support his classmates in doing the work of college. So it is hard to support not any kind of non-traditional learner, especially folks who have maybe not had access to technology for 20 or 30 years in some cases. But it's totally doable. And in a lot of cases, traditional students are the best advocates for that because they get so much out of the experience.
0: I love it so much. Let's talk about the national landscape. What does it look like for programs like EPI? There are several
2: organizations that bring us together in various ways. Emerson College is part of the Consortium for the Liberal Arts in Prison that's hosted by the Bard Prison Initiative. And the Bard Prison Initiative has been running since the late 1990s and has college and prison programs throughout the New York State area. There's also the Alliance for Higher Education in Prison, which is like a national organization that convenes people in an annual conference. And what we see, I think, especially right now because of Second Chance Pell, but even before the return to Pell funding, is just a recognition that this is the time to address these sorts of issues of educational access. I think the momentum around movements like Black Lives Matter has definitely been a part of that, of people just looking at the fact that, okay, it's the 2020s and we're still living in segregated societies where school funding for the K-12 systems is operating in a segregated way. We're reproducing social inequality all the time. College and prison is an intervention in that. So nationally, there are lots of programs like mine, but not like mine. And I recently published an article on The Conversation that makes the distinction between prison education which I define as something that is offered by departments of correction, by correctional educators, versus education in prison, where outside organizations are bringing their education models into prison. And so I think that both things are important in different ways. Of the education in prison organizations, Some people are offering bachelor's degrees, some people are offering associate's degrees, some people are offering credits that might accumulate into a professional certificate or not at all, and other people are doing not-for-credit programming. So there's a wide range of programs throughout the U.S. I think we, we need all of them because it represents where each institution is at. But ultimately, we know that the higher level of credentialization we can get people to, the more opportunities it opens up for them in terms of employment afterwards, and also just the greater depth of learning that gets to happen when you're in college
0: for longer. Finally, what gives you hope?
2: The students give me hope because they are so clear on their objectives to redefine what their life options are, and they are so dedicated To exploring a world of ideas that really felt closed to them in a lot of cases prior to coming into the program. We had students work on college essays through the pandemic when they had very little opportunity to be out of their cells because of pandemic conditions inside the prison. And they continued to write and to read and to reflect. And they used access to education as a way to cope with the harshness of the world. And so the students give me hope seeing them both inside and outside of prison continue to be so dedicated to try to be the best role models that they can be for their children and their families. My children get sick of me saying this. You know, it's easier to face the trivial, hard things about my own life when I know that people are confronting such difficult circumstances and continuing to persevere. So in that way, the students really keep me hopeful.
0: Well, Manisha, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much.
3: My hometown is just like any other city. There are positives and negatives. And unfortunately, I grew up where there was a lot of negative. The criminal activity outweighed education. It was just more about survival. Being a son of refugees, there were social and financial strains that seemed impossible to overcome. And growing up where I grew up, In the environment I was in, an education didn't fulfill the needs of being who you were and what you needed to do to survive. Just making it home from school was a struggle. It didn't matter whether you were getting good grades. My parents wanted me to graduate high school and pursue some sort of higher learning, but it was difficult. They had only been in the U.S. a short time, and they never went to a university, so they didn't know how to help me. As I was trying to figure out my own path, so were they. Before the EPI program, prison for me was all about making my body tired, physically exhausting myself, so I wouldn't think about the time I didn't have, the time away from my family, my age, the time I was wasting. Once I was in the EPI program, it was no longer about flexing my physical abilities or my muscles. It was knowing that by picking up a book, I was creating a different way of being, finding new strengths and abilities that I didn't know I had.
0: At the heart of the national dialogue around prison reform is a debate on what the point of incarcerating people should be. Are we looking to punish or are we looking to reform? I would argue that an enlightened society should be working to reform those who have been convicted of committing crimes. Especially here in the United States, it's an incredibly important point. Because we incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than any other nation on earth. Most of those people will be released into the population. So it's important for all of us that if we are going to lock so many people away, which is something we absolutely should stop doing, but if we are, that we use the time in prison to provide the incarcerated with tools, skills, and structures which will help them be successful when they are released. A college education tears down walls. It unlocks opportunities. And it provides a vision for a future that many incarcerated people were never able to consider for themselves. All of this makes a powerful argument for programs like the Emerson Prison Initiative. States should be supporting and expanding these programs, not reducing them.